Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. I'm Logan Jones, joined here with Evan Knowles, recording here at the uh, Awesome Inc. studio. And we've just gotten back from a little bit of a road trip. Literally it's just now. Sick. Came straight time. straight from the mountains of West Virginia to Awesome Inc. studio to record this intro. Um, yeah, let's recap the trip a little bit. That was that was awesome. Yeah, we went um, to West Virginia and did some whitewater rafting and uh, went down the lower gully river, right? That's what it was called. Um, there's the upper gully and the lower river, lower gully. Um, and it was probably a four-hour trip. Yeah, it was a four-hour trip through like class that. five, class four, and class three rapids. We had nine dudes on one boat. On one boat, which on is not boat. normal, I guess. I get, Yeah, we, we kind of got roasted for it. We had one person sitting in the front of the boat that they called the princess. You were the princess. I started off being the princess. Well, you stayed the princess. Well, I stuck... Yeah, she kept on the princess. Um, but that person essentially had the best job in all of the boat because you didn't have to paddle or anything. You could just sit there and enjoy the rapids and look around. Um, so we traded off the princess position, but I was branded the princess since I took it to start. Um, but man, rafting is awesome. In West Virginia, we got to stay kind of in the middle of nowhere, which was really cool to get away from the city and everything. And we noted multiple times when we were out at this property Um it was just so calm. You didn't hear cars. There were no roads nearby. You didn't hear any cars. You didn't hear any planes. It was just the wind on the trees. Was Try to stay off our phones. Yeah. Yeah. And this, so this was a birthday trip for me. I got to invite uh, eight of my eight of my close friends, and uh, everyone worked their schedules and coordinated their schedules so that they could all do this, which was super special for me. That's pretty much all I ever want for birthdays, to be able to spend time around the people that I enjoy spending time with. Experiences. Experiences, for sure. And this was probably, I think I said this on the way back, this was probably my favorite experience I've had of 2020 so far. It was a lot of fun. Um, so let's give the, let's give the listeners some tips if they want to go. Yeah. I think it's rafting. important. Uh, cause we, we could, we probably could have prepared maybe a little better, but I thought we did a great job preparing. Um, a couple things, uh, bring warm clothes, be prepared to be cold. Uh, I think being cold is a mental game, partly partially. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, we had wetsuits on, but that water was 60 degrees and it was what's it barely got out, barely got over outside. 60 yeah barely yeah. got over 60 outside so that water was really cold um so if you're going in either the spring or, or late fall be prepared to be cold because that water is frigid yeah i mean the peak period is september to october they said yeah. um so if you're going to go during prime time like you got to be prepared to be cold yeah. um and like we shivered for most of the day probably yeah it kind of gets the adrenaline going even more and yeah. then you're on top of being on these rapids it's really just an experience and an adventure altogether. Um, you also uh, need to row and sink with the rest of the boat. We kept having sides of the boat, left side, right side, get called out for one overpowering the other. Um, There's no coincidence that my side was typically overpowering Evan's side. I mean, everybody, no, everybody switched <laughs> sides so many times. There was no like set team. So there's a correlation. But it's important <laughs> to row and sink because like when you're going through the rapids, if you make one bad move, like that could be into a rock or you could be, you know, there are people getting stuck on rocks for hours. I mean, I, that person probably was stuck for They were there hour. for a while. Um, we had, we lost one guy. We had a swimmer. We lost Danny out of the boat. Danny was pretty, uh, he, <laughs> he was fell on purpose boat. once, but then a couple other times he fell. <laughs> um, but yeah, the boat could flip if you go the wrong direction. Uh, a lot could happen. And people, you know. Yeah, probably it's dangerous. Gonna drown, but it's dangerous. Yeah. You can get yourself into a situation, but uh, anyway, I think the best piece of advice that you wrote down here is oh, if yeah. you're traveling through West Virginia, bring cash for all the tolls because we were unprepared for that, and uh, we got to get a glimpse of how stuck in the past toll booths are. Apparently, yeah. 
that they can't take credit cards or any other form of payment except cash payments. Oh, so which good. is real, which is really annoying when you don't have any cash in the car because we don't like carrying cash anymore. It's because twenty twenty. Why would we? We're millennials. Yeah. Well, I mean, I pulled up there. Um, and we got lucky the first several times. We probably spent thirty dollars on tolls. <laughs> it's four dollars a toll, but if you didn't have cash, you had to pay um, a bill and they mail it to you. I guess. Um, and the processing fee is $5. So the processing fee is more than the actual toll, um, which is complete just bullshit. And uh, we pulled up there, and when we didn't have cash, I looked at the guy and said, he's like, what What are you going to do? I'm like, well, you tell me what we're going to do about it. Um, and what he did was he had me pull forward, and he got my license plate down. And, of course, they have my address um, and stuff attached to my license plate. Actually, they don't. They don't have my license. They don't have my address attached to my license plate. I don't think. We're yet. we're just working this out as we're recording. But this. Um, I guess they're going to send me a bill, and I've got to fill it out. And if I don't do it within fourteen days or something like that, thirty days, then it goes up to thirty dollars, and then like a hundred dollars, and then one hundred and twenty dollars after like. So God knows they need all the money they need, uh, West Virginia. Um, so they're just ripping <laughs> people off left and right with these tolls. <laughs> uh, so next time I roll through there and I don't have any cash, I'm going to have to like create some kind of license plate that covers it up with a fake one and just plow through. That's I plowed through a couple of them. Probably not a felony at so all. So I'm probably going to get three or four bills. Um, you did that tolls. multiple times? I did. I plowed through two of them. Oh. There were 75 cents. Okay. Well, so yeah. you're going to get slapped with some bills. So I'll okay. probably get slapped with some fines. But, I mean, again, <laughs> God, they need the money. So I'll willingly give them the money. You know, they need Funding it. those roads. Yeah. All right. Um, to get on to the episode that we – uh, recorded this week. We sat down with Kyle Green, who is the founder and CEO of Handle Global. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, Handle and what they're doing, Evan. Yeah, so um, really great interview. Kyle is by far one of the most intelligent people we've um, interviewed on this podcast. Um, amazing founder, uh, just somebody that really understands the space he's playing in. He has an amazing um, past and track record in the healthcare space, um, worked on some of the most world-class hospitals um, in the United States as well as overseas, um, has built systems um, that you know help people uh, you know stay healthy and save people's lives. Um, and what he's done is he's taken all that he's taken all that experience and he's now building um, basically uh, a software platform that not only helps hospitals um, acquire and and sell their equipment, but now he's helping them basically manage their ent- entire life cycle um, across the entire. Um, beginning of when they're buying this this equipment to when they're getting rid of it responsibly, mm-hmm. um, which is really important. So it's called capital cycle management software. <coughs> and, um, you know, over the long term, these hospitals that adopt this um, are really going to benefit because there's a ton of inefficiencies, inefficiencies um, around, you know, their equipment. Um, they spend so many um, hours that they would love to have back, and they spend a lot of money that they would love to be spending on saving people's lives. Uh, and handle, I think, is going to end up being uh, they're already a world class business because they're helping, you know, the the VA uh, and so many other hospitals around the United States um, that are major hospitals um, already. And then when COVID hit, that accelerated things. Um, and so I think they're on a path uh, to be one of Kentucky's. I, I, I can say this very confidently. I think they're on a path to be one of Kentucky's all time mm-hmm. uh, great software startups. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the cooler uh, realizations that I had during the interview, you know, I, I studied what they were doing and read up on them and everything. But as we were mid interview and we were talking about why COVID was actually a tailwind for them, it kind of made sense to me that they're collecting all of this data on 
um, spend cycles and capital management cycles for these healthcare facilities. And they're using that data to one, prepare and know when they need to have certain things in their inventory, which is genius on their end to, to have that kind of preparations. It's necessary, but it's also very smart. Um, and two, they're now building this network of all these hospitals that are moving assets all around constantly. So when it comes to a pandemic and, uh, you know, like COVID-19, we experienced PP&E shortages and you saw hospitals that had an abundance of them and hospitals that didn't have enough of them. So if you have that network, I think it could really be applied to any hope, God forbid, we ever go through something like this again. Um, but just knowing who needs what and having that platform that can help you yeah. uh, with the logistics of all that. I think that that makes this company really unique, especially during COVID time. Yeah. Transparency uh, is just so important. And mm-hmm. they're bringing transparency to a, a major part of the the supply chain for hospitals and then taking that above and beyond to just really help the entire healthcare system uh, with all the equipment because there's um, there's new equipment that these hospitals use, but a lot of these hospitals can't afford new equipment. Um, and so they're buying refurbished equipment and those hospitals want to know that they're buying, you know, trust, trusted equipment that, that, that can save lives and keep people healthy. Um, and so Handel is just really kind of solving a lot of these major problems in the healthcare system that have been around forever. But it takes someone like Kyle with his background and with his team to solve these problems. Um, you know, oftentimes we get founders on these on our podcast that are in really old um, legacy spaces like, um, you know, the horticulture space or the construction space, um, or the real estate space. Um, and all of these spaces are behind the times a bit because of the amount of experience it takes to be in these um, spaces and see the problems and understand what the problems are. There's capital requirements to get into these spaces. Um, and it just takes time to solve these large problems in some of these more legacy industries. So healthcare is without a question one of those. Um, and younger people um, that have a lot of experience like Kyle um, are solving those problems. And that that's beginning to be shown in the healthcare system, especially now with telehealth um, and so many things popping up in the healthcare space. You know, it's a prime time uh, to be starting a healthcare company and Kyle and his team are, are killing it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're super excited to share this interview with you. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. We are sitting in Louisville in the Handel offices in Norton Commons. Logan and I, when we pulled in here, were pretty impressed. We've never been. Yeah, this place has never been here, but it's it's quite the facility. Um, we are with Kyle Green, the CEO of, of Handel Global. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. We're Appreciate excited it. for this one. We've heard so many good things. I've got a lot of friends uh, up here in Louisville that have uh, heard said great things. Um, so we're excited to sit down with you and interview you and hear what you're all up to, man. Um, Same with you guys. Same with you guys. Yeah. You guys are building a good thing here. Yeah. Appreciate it. So let's jump into your background. We just want to kind of hear, you have a really unique background. We'll get to that in a second, but let's hear about, you know, where you're from, education, um, and we'll go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm from Kentucky originally, Um, from kind of a small town in Taylor County, Kentucky, little town, Mansville, that was a, you know, post office and a stoplight kind of place. Um, the school actually I went to doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I was there until about seventh grade, um, lived out in the middle of nowhere, kind of a 
hippie upbringing, actually, no running water, um, in a pond and garden and, um, pumped in all the water for showers and stuff like that through the pond. Um, and then we, we moved to Danville when I was in seventh grade and we actually took a Jehovah's Witness church and gutted the inside of it and kind of changed the facade and took up the parking lot and turned it into grass and that kind of stuff. And that's, that's where my parents still live. Um, so yeah, from Kentucky, my parents are not though. My dad's from New York, my mom's from Iowa and they just kind of settled in Kentucky cause they had siblings who were here and, um, they loved the land honestly and decided to stick around. Yeah. What's your uh, education background look like? Yeah, so undergrad went to Transylvania in Lexington, Transylvania University, um, liberal arts school, as you guys know. Um, those f- folks who are from Kentucky know that. Um, played basketball in college and was a biology and pre-med major, and then did a master's degree in healthcare administration at University of Kentucky, um, and then did some other kind of post-grad education stuff after that later. What position in uh, basketball did you play? <laughs> I was kind of a guard forward slasher type. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Late bloomer, real small when I was young, <laughs> played point guard and all that, and then grew and could kind of play anywhere. Yeah. When I was uh, doing some research, I came across the article you had written about your, your background uh, and how that you know shaped your life and how that shaped how you approach business. Talk about that a bit, how that's affected the way you've grown and, and started handle. Yeah. I mean, when I was really young, we had nothing, you know, we were living out in the middle of nowhere. We had all hand-me-down clothes. We had a garden, all that stuff that I just mentioned. But, um, I mean, literally we had sheep for a while and we would like my mom and, and dad would shear the sheep and literally spun the wool and we'd make hats and gloves and not gloves, but hats and, um, things like that out of, out of the wool. It was crazy. But, um, I remember the well, even like pulling the drinking water up. I remember like the white and and blue nylon twisted rope that I used to lower the bucket down and then pull it up. And that was the drinking water for the day. Um, but that kind of stuff, I mean, just makes it so you don't take anything for granted. And, um, the way the house was even built actually had some kind of long-term implications to how I think about business too. So my, my dad was a carpenter and contractor and he was working for a commercial construction crew in Campbellsville, Kentucky. And they had to tear down two houses to build an apartment building and when they tore down the two houses, he literally took the boards from the houses, brought them out to the middle of nowhere in this 30-acre plot of land that he bought for $10,000 that he borrowed from his mom and took the nails out of the boards, and that was the siding for the house. Um, and then we had a, a tin roof and um, outhouse and that kind of stuff, no indoor plumbing. I mean, that's that's how I grew up. So I, I grew up a few generations <laughs> back, even though yeah. it was not that long ago. That's crazy. That's really cool. Um, so let's touch on, you know, your professional career, just right up to the point that you started handle global, which is really impressive background. Um, it sets you up probably pretty well to see the ins and outs of the problem you're solving. So kind of walk us through, you know, the different jobs you held and maybe briefly what that kind of prepared you for. Yeah, sure. So after undergrad and and grad school in Kentucky, um, I did a administrative fellowship at Johns Hopkins health system in Baltimore so at the time, Johns Hopkins was ranked the number one health system by U.S. News and World Report, and they had an administrative fellowship program where they'd selected two people um, from all the MHA programs, mostly some MBA programs too. And you go, and it's a rotational-based thing, and you spend time in surgery and HR and uh, finance, supply chain, et cetera. And so you're there for six to eight weeks each. Um, so did that, and then 
uh, went to China actually. So I, I was at a happy hour with the head of HR and the CEO of Johns Hopkins International who were good friends. And um, they were talking about somebody who had reached out to Johns Hopkins International and, and said that they needed somebody to come to China to help them write a strategic plan to create these for-profit hospitals in China. And I was like, well, who are you going to send? And, you know, I was young and just full of energy and ambition and ready to go and still am, but um, even younger then. And so they were like, uh, I don't know who we're going to send. And I said, well, I'll go. And uh, they were like, well, maybe. And so like the next week we scheduled a meeting to actually talk about it and um, ended up going over, over to Beijing initially and worked with a really, really bright guy named Andrew Nevin, um, who was a McKinsey and Company guy, Rhodes Scholar, PhD in economics from Harvard, um, graduated with his PhD when he was 19. Um, oh, he's a kid. Yeah. Yeah. From Harvard, yeah, yeah. Canadian guy from Toronto. Um, worked at TD Bank for a while, then worked in a couple of startups, tech companies, sold the tech companies. But his wife was a physician, and she was working for a hospital in Beijing. And they ended up ousting the CEO of the hospital, and they signed a petition to get rid of the hospital administrator. And, and so Andrew, who had just sold one of his tech companies, they knew he was a good business guy, and some of the board members knew him. And they said, hey, can you just plug in and be our temporary CEO? And so he did that, and he was like, well, I, have no, I know nothing about healthcare. And so he reached out to Johns Hopkins and said, hey, do you have anybody you can send over here to help me like write a plan to figure out how to scale this thing up? Because he's used to building companies and scaling them. And so, again, that that's how I ended up going over there is because he reached out to Hopkins, and Hopkins was considering who they might send, and so they ended up sending me. So I went over there initially to, to write that plan, did that for three months, and then Andrew said, why don't you go to Shanghai where we, we want to replicate this model. So they had built a hospital in Beijing. It was kind of a high-end kind of expat and wealthy Chinese hospital. And they said, we want to do the same thing in Shanghai and then have kind of a cookie-cutter model in Guangzhou and Xiamen and other big cities. So went down to Shanghai and was by myself there. My wife was actually there. We um, They hired us as a package deal. She was the head of HR, and I was the head of like oh, cool. opening the hospital. <clears throat> and so she was responsible for hiring all the all the doctors and um, support staff and stuff like that. And um, so we hired a few hundred people in nine months and went from zero hospital to a full service hospital. And um, Andrew was living in Beijing. And so he would kind of do this route where his family was living in Hong Kong because his wife left the hospital in Beijing and went to Hong Kong to do a fellowship in a different subspecialty. So he would work in Beijing and then he would fly to Shanghai maybe once every three or four weeks and then would would also go to Hong Kong and see his family and then kind of make the loop back up to Beijing. So I was by myself. You know, I was 24, um, didn't didn't really know what I was doing, but figured it out. And, uh, yeah, opened the first International Standards Hospital in Shanghai. Um, then after that, came back to the States and worked at uh, Norton Healthcare. So when I was at UK, I did uh, you know two-year master's program. Between the first and second years, you had to do an administrative internship. So I did that at Norton Healthcare. And worked with some really sharp people in strategic planning and um, got to meet several of the senior level administrators there. And they tracked my progress. And when I went to Hopkins and then then to China, they recruited me back and ended up coming back to Norton and having a great experience there. It was a wonderful culture and great company. And um, they allowed me to work at the system level for a little while. Then I went to the Children's Hospital about six months into my time there, actually, and, and was in operations at the children's hospital. So start out as the AVP of operations, then the VP of operations and 
and then did strategy and business development as a service line leader for pediatrics across the system. Um, and then after that, uh, while I was there, I went to Harvard Business School and did a program called Managing Healthcare Delivery. So it was the first time HBS had done anything specific in healthcare. And so we had kind of the all-star cast of, of professors, which I didn't even realize until later that the Harvard MBA professors like Michael Porter on strategy and Clayton Christensen with innovation and some of those well-known professors, like you have to get in a lottery, actually, even if you're, you're paying to get your Harvard MBA, like you don't necessarily get one of those professors. And we got all of them because we were, we were executives or whatever, even though I was a kid compared to a lot of the other folks. Um, you know, most of the folks in that class, there were 68 participants in that class, half were physicians, half were non-physicians from 17 different countries. And a lot of those folks were, you know, 50 plus and I was 30. Um, and so just having that experience was awesome to learn from them. And so I went through that program and, and then relatively shortly after finishing that program, um, Phoenix Children's recruited me to come out to Arizona and um, went out there. And that's like the fifth largest children's hospital in the country and was senior VP of, of operations out there. And then, and then became later the chief strategy officer and head of business development at Phoenix Children's. And we acquired our biggest competitor and moved into a brand new building, did lots of fun stuff out there. Uh, and then after that, I started Handle. So I think one of the coolest parts of that story was you just were a 20-something and decided you're going to go to a completely different country. Yeah. And I mean, how that had to have played a really significant role in terms of just throwing yourself into an opportunity like that. And what were some of your biggest learnings and takeaways and things that you applied to the rest of your career from taking that step into a completely new culture? Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, it definitely helped with skipping rungs in the ladder I for think, sure um, early yeah. on in my career and you know when you're looking at different positions and people are looking at you and you stand out just because you've done something different um doesn't necessarily mean you're better it just means that you've done something that's unique right so having that diversity of experience is critical and it also i mean from a, a learning perspective i always talk about that time as being almost like in dog years you know when year equals seven kind of thing it was just so intense um because everything was was stimulating, you know, like just getting to work was stimulating. I remember we used to take a taxi, my wife and I would take a taxi from our apartment to the hospital in Shanghai and we didn't know how to speak Chinese and or Mandarin or Shanghai Hua, which is like the, the Chinese dialect or the, the Shanghai dialect of Mandarin. And we took class an hour a day. And so we got to the point where we were like a, a little bit conversant. I mean, we could get around, we can go to the market, we can negotiate a little bit. Um, we could, we could order food at restaurants. Um, you know, we could find the bathroom and things, but, um, we didn't really know how to do complex directions and we were there in 2004. And so this was before, I know that doesn't sound like too long ago, but this is before smartphones were actually a thing. I mean, we had these little, I remember like the Nokia 8165, there's like this little phone with buttons on the front, you know, and, and like it's tiny screen, black and white. And so there was no, you know, Waze or Google Maps or Apple Maps or anything like that to, to show the cab driver how to get to work. Like literally it was hard to get to work. So you learned how to speak enough Mandarin where you could say, go straight, uh, right, left and stop like, or, and go, I remember saying go too. And so <laughs> when I first started going to work, literally I would, I would like yell at the cab driver and be like, go, go, go. And I couldn't describe anything. Like I couldn't say there's a purple building on the right and it's a couple past that on the right or whatever. Um, I would just be like, go, 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 go. And then I'd yell, stop. And then we would screech the brakes 
and we'd stop like past the hospital and then I'd be like, I'm back there. Can you like put it in reverse for a second? You know, I'd be like back, back, back and then right there. I mean, we did that every day. It was like Groundhog Day, just being an idiot because we didn't know how to, how to do anything. And then while we were there, they came out with an app called Guanxi. Uh, Guanxi in Mandarin means relationships and connections. And so they would, you could, you could text the service. You could text the address in English to the service. And then the service would translate the address and send it back in Chinese characters. And so then I could, I could text it. It would shoot back the, the actual address in characters. And then I could show the cab driver before we left. And so then they could take us there. And that just changed my life. That was like, that was a big thing. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine going to a different country without a smartphone now. Like I can type in everything. It almost yeah. translates in real time now. Yeah. Uh, but that's really cool that you just took that step out there and threw yourself completely into that culture. Um, I think that relates a lot to entrepreneurship and taking steps to starting your own company. It's very much has the same kind of dynamics to it. Uh, so I'd like to segue that into uh, starting hand, uh, Handle. Uh, so just kind of dive into the origin of Handle. Kind of talk about when you identified a problem and then how you started going about solving that problem through starting a company. Yeah, yeah. So the beginning of Handle, and back in the day we were called Healthcare Asset Network, and we we're called Healthcare Asset Network because we were dealing with healthcare assets of all types, supplies, equipment, uh, and, and the network concept was really trying to create um, connectivity between hospitals because the goal was to try to organize and professionalize the secondary market. We had seen some examples back when I was in my hospital operations roles of things not going well, um, related to using local liquidators and related to refurb companies not being um, above board about certain things. And um, there just wasn't a technology platform to also create connectivity between hospitals and health systems. And so started there kind of at the end of a, of a life cycle of an asset. Um, and then over time, we've kind of worked even backwards. And, and now we, we think of ourselves as more end to end from the beginning of planning uh, to purchase an asset, to managing an asset once you own it, to the end of life. But yeah, in the beginning, it was all trying to organize that. And one of the analogies we've used in the past is, you know, it used to be kind of the, the ticket scalpers used to be kind of unorganized back alley deals. And then StubHub came along and created a platform. And there have been some copycats since then, but they were the original. Um, and that's, that's kind of what we saw in the secondary market in healthcare too. Lots of Lots of back office deals and, and back dock of the hospital deals where, you know, folks would just exchange cash or check or whatever to their liquidator buddy who was local. And then and they would take those assets and flip them. You know, they would just take them and sometimes refurbish them, sometimes not and, and you know, buy, sell, buy, sell. Um, so we just wanted to, to come up with something that was more technology driven, data driven, um, that really catered to the needs of the provider. So it was more provider centric than what historically was not. Yeah. Give us an idea of like how severe the problem is from the hospital's perspective. How much money are they wasting? How many um, hours of time are they wasting with their employees? Give us an idea of like how severe it is from the hospital's perspective, this, this problem. Yeah, so that particular problem, like in the secondary market, and then I'll maybe talk a little bit about what other problems we're solving today. Um, but that particular problem, I mean, if you look at just the, the shrinkage or leakage or kind of waste from a supplies perspective, I mean, that's usually two and a half percent is kind of an industry average. Um, but that's that's on big numbers, like really, really big numbers, you know, billions of dollars a year. Um, there have been some studies that have said that it's in the 15, 16 billion dollars 
range. Um, and that's for, for items that are purchased today, but also items that are sitting in hallways that sort of escape the building somehow, right? So they might go in a, in a pocket of, of an employee. They might, you know, be sold out the back door by some sales rep. Um, they might be things that just are kind of, um, wasted because they, are in a hall in a hallway or in a warehouse kind of degrading or depreciating because folks just don't have good tracking of their assets and don't know what they have. And, um, also hoarding of assets kind of on the floor within a hospital that a nurse or respiratory therapist or some other clinician might say, well, I don't know when I'm going to get another one of these. So I'm going to put it in this drawer or I'm going to put it in this closet. And so the stuff just kind of sits there forever. So what did the initial version of your solution to this problem look like? Kind of walk us through the early early days of the platform and where you guys first started building to solve this problem. So in the beginning, we were really trying to create a, a listing mechanism on, in its most simple form. You know, how do we create something that's easy for the end user? And so we created a, a mobile tool to allow them to take a picture of an item and upload it to a phone and then push it push it out to us. And then we would kind of process that item on the back end. you know, before we had built a marketplace, we just wanted to make sure we had intake of the assets. So that was the kind of the beginning part of it. Um, and then over time it evolved into much more, you know, obviously marketplace and then analytics and then other software tools, but the beginning was a listing tool. Well, let's go ahead and dive into that. We'd love to talk about where it evolved into because now it's a whole new category of software essentially. So go ahead and start diving into, uh, when it started evolving and what it's evolved into now. Yeah, so the progression was a listing tool that then fed to a, a back end where we would um, kind of vet and curate those items and figure out the right path for those items to then thinking about let's create a, a marketplace for those assets and put those onto something that's visible by others. And then after the marketplace, then we started thinking about, all right, let's create a matching algorithm to match buyers and sellers based on what we know you're getting rid of and what you're trying to buy. Uh, and then we also... As we started selling used equipment, especially, and then those health systems would say, well, where, where do these items go? And then we'd start to tell them about how we vetted and curated the refurb market, and they were going to like high-quality refurb companies. And then those high-quality refurb companies would ultimately sell those to surgery centers or hospitals or other large health systems. And so sometimes the customer that wanted to initially just sell would say, well, maybe we want to be a buyer, too. And so as, as they went into the buy phase, um, we started adding more things to the marketplace. So we started going to these refurb companies and, and trying to help us balance the marketplace. Any marketplace you have, it's all about managing the, the balance of buyers and sellers, right? It's a chicken and egg problem that everybody talks about. But having that equilibrium and having enough liquidity in the marketplace is, is critical. So we actually probably were too heavy in the beginning on trying to find enough um, you know, sellers and buyers that matched as hospitals and there wasn't enough product there. So what we ended up having to do is, was go to some of the refurb companies and manufacturers and add more products. So we created more supply. And then we knew if we had the supply, we could go to the demand side and say, look, we have supply now come. So that worked. And we had folks who started coming to the marketplace after we created more, more of the supply. <clears throat> and we also started adding more things to the marketplace. So the next layer was after adding refurbished equipment to the marketplace, we started adding some new items because surgery centers and hospitals who are either doing new build outs or renovations. So let's just take a surgery center as an example. Surgery centers are predominantly for profit. About 90% of surgery centers are for profit. On the opposite end of that, hospitals, most of those are nonprofit, right? So 85% or so, 80 85% are, are nonprofit. 
So in the for-profit surgery center world, if you're building a new surgery center, the surgeon who owns it usually is highly incentivized to do that in a capital efficient way, right? So they want to, they want to get as much equipment as they can for as little money as they possibly can. And so they're very open to buying refurbished equipment, but when they would do a turnkey surgery center and they'd ask us sometimes to help them plan those out, they would have some ancillary items that maybe would not be refurbished. They maybe would need a, a new kick bucket or Mayo stand or other things that are in the OR that can be new. Um, but you need to kind of build those around the expensive refurbished OR table or the OR lights or things like that, the surgical microscope, et cetera. So we started adding more things to our, our marketplace that, that were able to complete the package, if you will. And then as we got into that side of things, you know, we started seeing hospitals that um, not only wanted to, to buy and sell in the marketplace, but we started to understand more about you know, how they did their capital planning. And I knew some of that for sure from being in the hospital operations world before. Um, but as we wanted to get more strategic and we wanted to have the marketplace be more effective for our customers, we wanted data to drive that. So the more data we had and the more we knew about what their cycle looked like. So when are they going to buy? When are they going to sell? If we knew when they're going to buy and sell, then we could plan better to get things on the marketplace because we know, okay, this thing's coming out in March of next year. Let's get the market ready to buy it, right? So we'd be able to sell that CT or MRI or ultrasound or something like that in a, in a more effective manner to represent the hospital if we knew it was coming out at a certain date instead of them calling us on a Monday and saying, hey, you got to get out by Friday, uh, which is often what happens, right? So you, you might call on a Monday and say, we just, we're getting the beds in from Stryker and they, they got to be out by Friday. Um, and so you'd have to come and, and help them get rid of all those beds. Well, it's difficult to find buyers in three days, right? But if we know it's coming because we've got data and we understand what their process looks like, then it's much easier to sell. Same thing on the buy side. You know, if we're embedded in their strategic process of, of capital, then we can give them more opportunities to, to stretch their capital and save money. Hey, we know of, of this surgical microscope that this other surgery center is getting rid of because the doctor that they hired is no longer there and they were only there for a year. And that, that item is a $200,000 item. Like you can save 50 grand if you just buy that through our network, right? So we can match buyers and sellers and the whole algorithm works better if you know exactly what's on somebody's list to buy and then you know what other folks are trying to sell and as you match them up it works some valuable data there why um are you guys the only really one of the only companies doing this kind of marketplace talk about the competition and and why now why is right now a good time for a marketplace like this to begin to develop in a in a product like yours to you know have success yeah so I mean, there are other players in the space that do pieces of what we do. I think what one of the things that we've evolved into when we think about the product and where it's going and where it's even accelerated lately too is we're really looking at the whole spectrum end to end from planning and analysis to the procurement process itself to asset management when you own it, so tracking the assets to to the asset disposition piece. And there are a lot of point solutions out there, but we're really trying to create this connectedness um, and have a data underpinning that that makes it all work, right? A central data warehouse kind of thing that makes all that work. And then, you know, we're basically an, an operating system that allows that to happen. Um, so I think from a competition perspective, there are players in little vertical silos of what we're doing, but not across kind of the end-to-end spectrum. Um, and one of the analogies that we use and one of the reasons why we, we call what we do capital cycle management is it's very similar to what 
problems existed in revenue cycle or managing money in hospital in the hospital world um, probably 15 or 20 years ago and actually when Zermed started so a great local company that had a, had a great exit and um, they started looking at vertical silos that were a problem and they created a horizontal platform that connected all those vertical vertical silos um, same thing here there are lots of vertical silos and point solutions and now we're creating this interconnectedness and horizontal platform to, to cover that just curious from like <clears throat> your your mind um, and when you started this company when you started this company did you see all the verticals that could be connected and say down the road you know five six years I'd like to connect those or was it I'm gonna start and just solve this small problem and then it just became that like when you I want to know like when you started the company did you see the vision or did it kind of develop as you built the company I mean the I think the vision has definitely uh, become more clear uh, I think in the beginning we were trying to solve a specific problem and trying to tackle that and do that as, as well as we possibly could. Um, but, I, you know, I did know that over time an ecosystem would be created. I mean, it was one of the, actually the things we talked about a lot at HBS was ecosystems and how the moat is always bigger if you have an ecosystem because somebody might be able to compete with you on one thing. But if you have several things tied together and they're, they're interlocked, it's really, really difficult to compete um, with that. Right. So, you know, that's kind of what's happened to us over time. And it's interesting, you know, we always battle with, are you diluting your focus by doing this thing and this thing and this thing? But if, if those things are, are connected in a way that makes sense for the user and they're not far astray from, from the strategy, the core strategy, then, then I think it's okay. Um, but really it's just trying to create that ecosystem is how I thought about it before. So we've got the, the ecosystem, which has evolved over time, but then kind of, morphing that into more of an operating system has been kind of the, the more recent thought that's different than what we had anticipated in the beginning. Yeah. Let's, uh, COVID when we jumped on the phone with you prior to this, you know, the marketplace obviously is a great solution for something like COVID you're connecting buyers and sellers. When an event like COVID happens, they're able to get onto this marketplace and see what kind of inventory is available for them. How did, you know, COVID affect you guys and were you guys ready for that? Yeah. COVID has been, uh, been hugely impactful to us. It's been a wild, wild several months. Um, you know, in the in the beginning of COVID, when I think it was mostly panic, right? So a lot of health systems were seeing the numbers go up, and they were starting to steepen, and <clears throat> they knew that they had to be more prepared. And so they said, well, "Gosh, we got to buy more ventilators and more beds and more monitors and pumps, and especially ICU related items." Um, there was just a, a flood to the market to get those items. And most of the manufacturers are built on a just-in-time inventory approach and process, and so they couldn't respond. You know, there just wasn't enough raw material, and there wasn't enough manufacturing capacity, and there just wasn't enough product out there for the demand. So as that happened, and, and most of the big manufacturers were basically you know, bled dry immediately, you know, the lead time for a lot of those items was 12 weeks plus and nobody saw the end of COVID. And so they were like, well, that's not going to be acceptable. We're going to have to buy things from an alternative source. So a lot of our existing customers and then a whole bunch of new customers came to us and said, hey, we can't buy any new stuff. Can we buy refurbished? Or we know you have some new stuff on your platform, but it's a challenger brand, let's say. Um, and they, they wanted those items. And so there was a mad rush in March and April, especially to, to buy as much stuff as they possibly could to get as prepared as they could. So there was a lot of marketplace activity during that time. 
And then we also, during that time, um, had had been talking to the VA for a long time about how to how to help them with a few different things. And um, and then during COVID, ended up working with them on um, a specific solution around asset recertification. And so we're now working with them nationally on asset recertification and um, kind of deployment, redeployment of assets. And you know, the original premise was basically to say if you have items in a warehouse or in hallways or just underutilized assets, um, could you potentially recertify those, attach a warranty to those, a one-year warranty to those, um, bring those back into service either at the same facility or maybe a COVID hotspot and push those at a different spot? Um, could they optimize the equipment that they had within their system and utilize our software and service to make that happen? <clears throat> so we've done that for them and we've moved a lot of assets around and um, it's been, you know, great for us and I think great for them. And, you know, we're super proud of that program because it's, it's something that I think has, has moved the needle in a, in a time when the country needed it. I mean, the, the VA is such a massive entity. People don't realize how, how big it really is. It's the, it's the, about the 10th largest employer in the U S it's about the same size as general electric. It's bigger than AT&T. It's bigger than Starbucks. It's bigger than Pepsi. You know, it's, it's a monster. Um, so they have 172 hospitals, they have thousands of locations in total. Um, it's just a, it's a very complex beast. So being able to deal with that has, has made it so we're, we're pretty confident on other things too. I think I'm just kind of putting something together with what your company's doing and how significant it is for something like COVID-19. So with COVID, we've seen shortages of supplies in different areas. Is this something to where you're getting so much, if you, if you get on a nationwide level where you've got hospitals all over the nation and you've got all these, this data on what hospitals need and what they're looking for, that seems like something that would come in a lot of handy in a time like a pandemic when there's shortage here and there in terms of allocating materials around. Is that something that you guys are, are looking into providing a solution to going forward? And that's what I was going to ask as well. You know, it's a very similar question prior to a marketplace like this existing, are they getting on the phone and just calling cold calling hospitals and saying, we need this. Do you have this? Or what, what did it look like prior to you? And then, yeah, answer, you know, Logan's question. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always an imbalance. Um, and then just kind of how the country reacted to the panic, you know, basically it became a hunger games type approach where, you know, the hospitals that had cash would be able to buy everything. Those that didn't, couldn't, um, same with the States, you know, the States that acted more quickly could, could buy things. And those that didn't, couldn't. And, so there ended up being, you know, a lot of folks who would hoard assets and then others who had nothing. Um, and if, if COVID would have been worse, and, and I do fear the, the fall and winter a little bit, because if, if the flu is bad and COVID continues the way it is now, running a little bit unabated, you know, it, it could be a, a serious problem. Um, and if that happens, you know, the haves are going to be able to, to be more prepared than, than the have-nots, that's for sure. Um, so... Yeah, historically, if folks needed things and they didn't have them, they call each other definitely to try to share either locally or, or regionally or sometimes nationally. And and then as COVID has happened, um, you know, some some entrepreneurial folks have definitely stood up little easy to use platforms that are basically glorified Excel spreadsheets where you say, hey, what do you have and what do you need? And you know, we try to match them up. And you know, we've had that kind of solution for a while, and so we're doing that with our customer base. But they're there are others that have popped up to to try to help with some of that. Um, you know, the problem with some of that is that it goes way beyond um, just I have this and I need this. It, it's also the logistics of moving things around, 
you know, things get broken in transit, um, clinical standardization. So just because you have this and, and you need that, I need a bed, I have a bed. Well, is it a striker bed? Is it a Hillron bed? What kind of features are on it? You know, can I actually use it here? Have my clinicians been trained on that? I mean, it's, it's, it goes down to a much deeper level than people realize. Yeah, I think I read in one of your blogs about you guys helped coordinate the logistics of like uninstalling machinery and then reinstalling the new machinery. Is that through partnerships that you guys are doing that or is that through relationships that you've formed through doing all of this that, that you're able to do that? How does that actually take place? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the situation, but we definitely have relationships around the country and, and it is a very regional thing. Like um, a lot of even the big companies, you know, people think that if you're a big brand, then you probably have your own trucks and you probably have your own service and you have your own lots of things. But a lot of those things are are networks. You know, the big manufacturers have networks of regional or local folks that provide the service for that national brand, or they provide the logistics for that national brand. And so we've, we've built our own networks over time that do that kind of thing. Right. So we have refurb companies that are trusted and a lot that aren't. And so we don't use them. We have logistics companies, same way. Some are good, some are not, most are not. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very complicated thing when you put these layers of, of, of things on top of each other with service and logistics and, you know, the other stuff that I mentioned about training, et cetera. That's a whole lot of value to add simplicity to all that complexity. Cause I, I look at that and I'm like, I don't even know how you would go about organizing all that. And you know, the logistics of that just seems like a nightmare. Um, but to kind of transition into more back to, to handle, we noticed you have some really strong resumes on your team. So how have you gone about attracting the talent that you have on your team now? Yeah. Our team is the the best part of, of handle in my opinion. I mean, I, I, I love all our teammates. They're amazing. The culture is amazing. They would say that too, I think. I think everybody just really enjoys being with each other. And, you know, we've got a, we've got a unique culture that was built on, you know, in the beginning we, we hired folks who were just generalists, you know, who people who were smart and, you know, several of them came from healthcare. We made sure we had enough healthcare knowledge, but then surrounded them with some younger folks who maybe didn't have healthcare knowledge, but were just eager to learn and, and were ready to tuck under somebody's wing and we could, we could train them and they could learn fast um, I have a lot of athletes on our team. It's, you know, I played sports in college. We've talked about that before. And, um, several of our folks did, I mean, our, our operations manager was a four time all American in soccer. And we've got some several Bellarmine athletes, you know, one, one of them who was the number one golfer on Bellarmine's golf team. We've got three other guys who have been around the company who also played golf at, at Bellarmine, um, either have been here as interns or full-time folks. Um, we've got a baseball player that played at Bellarmine. He played at IU before he transferred to Bellarmine. Um, we've got tennis players. We've got you know people from all kinds of different sports. It's funny um, you mentioned Bellarmine there real quick. Uh, my co-founder, actually how I heard about Handel was the co-founder of my startup played golf at Bellarmine. And oh, yeah. Guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. how I heard of it. So it's, it's just funny. But, yeah, great crew. Yeah. And then of late, we've we've continued to, to hire folks that, um, you know, are transformational to the business. And we've hired... A chief operating officer recently, Keetan Patel, who's phenomenal. Um, you know, he's a he went to speed school at U of L, so there's definitely local ties. And then worked at GE and did Six Sigma kind of stuff here. And then he um, did management consulting in Chicago for a while and got his MBA at Northwestern in, in finance. Um, worked for Vista Equity Partners, which is one of the largest private equity firms in the world. I respect them a lot. Yeah, their yeah. their latest fund I think was sixteen billion dollars, and um, yeah, they're. I think they've only had like one company that's failed or something like yeah. that. Some, some, some kind of ridiculous yeah. track record like that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, he, he worked for them and they ended up 
um, selling the company he he worked for that Vista was backing, sold it to Oracle, and then he worked for Oracle and was head of North America um, apps for Oracle for analytics. He was head of analytics, and then um, went to SAP and was was VP of Global Performance Management at SAP. Um, so he's just he's phenomenal from an execution standpoint, and um, hired a chief revenue officer recently who worked at Hillrom, Matt Crane. Um, he was the head of strategy for Hillrom, which is a publicly traded company, and then was head of enterprise accounts. And um, so has a really great team that he built there. Um, we have, I could go on and on about every one of our yeah. employees. I mean, they're all they're all amazing. But yeah, I mean, I think I think there's gravity in creating an environment where people love to to compete and to work hard and to um, solve challenging problems. I know that sounds all cliched, but it's just true. And A players attract A players. And one of the things now that we're we're starting to scale a little bit more is is making sure that not only do we hire A players, but those A players continue to hire A players and and go through the right structure to do that. Um, you know, we've we've recently employed a a cognitive testing that that we do with every one of our employees. So we've done it with the outside employees, the new ones, and then also our existing employees, and it's called the CCAT. Um and we've had a lot of folks who've tested in the 90 plus percentile on that. And so we know we were, we're hiring really smart people. Um, and that's a Vista thing. And Vista's playbook is all about hiring um, and screening out almost everybody, yeah. <laughs> only hiring the very, very top folks. And, and that's, that's one of the things we're doing too. And so we want, we want people who want to challenge and, and who want to compete. Uh, it was interesting. I was actually listening. This is a little bit of an aside, but I was listening to this little three minute talk by Kara Lawson, who's the new, basketball coach at, at the Duke women's basketball program. She played at, at University of Tennessee. And she was talking about the difference between hard work and competing. And she was basically saying, you know, you can go out and do individual workouts and, and look like you're working really hard, sweating, going through your reps hard and trying to get better. And then you go run and you might run pretty fast when you're running from end to end. But then as soon as I introduce somebody else and I have you run against somebody else, miraculously you go faster, you know, and it's that, that competition thing that makes people who, who want to compete, um, just perform at a different level and, you know, having people who are on the team who want to compete, but compete as a team against, you know, against other folks, you know, we don't like create infighting or anything, but, but having that competitive fire, that intrinsic motivation to compete, not just to work hard is a, is a big difference, I think. And so finding those kind of people is, is important to us. And then an, another interesting thing I saw recently was was about um, kind of profiles of people within high growth companies, and you, you've you've seen I'm sure some um, personality tests and things like that. Myers Briggs, yeah, like Myers Briggs, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so they'll they'll have little you know INDJ kind of things or whatever. But this one was EPAI, and so E was for entrepreneur. And so the entrepreneur is the one who has the vision and is, you know, that one of the examples they gave was you're in college, let's say, and you're sitting in class and you look out the window and, and you see this grassy area next to the building and you're like, man, I hate parking on campus. It's the worst. Like I always get tickets, always have to parallel park and can never find a spot. It takes me forever. I'm always late to class, but I'm looking out the window and I see this grassy area. I'm like, there should be a parking structure right there. You know, so the entrepreneur would say there's, there should absolutely be a parking structure right there. And maybe it's a six story parking structure. So that's the E, right? They have the ideas. The entrepreneur person is the ideas. And then the P is a producer. So the producer would would look at that same area and probably listen to the entrepreneur first and be like, oh, you want to do a six-story uh, garage? But they might look at that and say, 
Well, actually, the better scenario would be to do two structures on that plot of land because you need access from this road and this road and it would optimize the flow of traffic and all that kind of thing. So the producer would like try to come up with a master plan and how to execute on that vision, right? And then the A is administrator. And so the administrator would come into the two parking structures that are now created and they would say, okay, we've got these parking structures. That's awesome. Now, how do we get cars in and out and how do we take payments and how do we optimize the payments and maybe not have somebody at the booth and just do it through a credit card or whatever? And how do we measure that? And how do we know the metrics are good? And so they're building repeatable processes, right? So the administrator is building the, the processes. And then after the company is up and running for a little while and you have a lot of people there maybe or a few employees there that are you know, doing the lights and doing the accounting and the books and the back end and looking for the next real estate spot or whatever, then you have I. So the I is the integrator. And so that integrator is now coming in and saying, okay, we've got people and now we've got to make sure these people get along. Right. So we've got to build the culture and build traditions and and make it so these people enjoy being here. What kind of benefits do they need? What kind of things are we going to do for team building? All of that. So it's just interesting when you think about building a company and you ask about town and how we do it and all that. Just thinking about who fills the right roles at the right time, because the company evolves, you know, and, and the company changes and the strategy changes a little bit. And you know, there's another great book that Marshall Goldsmith wrote called um, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And that's, I think, another important lesson to learn as you're growing a company is, you know, what gets you the first million dollars is not probably going to get you from one to 10. You're going to have to retool and from 10 to 50. And it's all different, different stages that require different, different people in different seats. Yeah. Talk about how you've <clears throat> paced your, your growth and your scaling um, and then how you expect to do that as you go forward with this tailwind. Um, you know, what points did you decide to raise money? You mentioned that you're wanting to raise money now. How have you made sure that you pace your growth? correctly. And then now that this is a major tailwind, how do you expect that to, to change and how do you control that going forward? Yeah, I think pace is one of the hardest things when you're building a company. And um, one of the hardest things, even after the company's been around for a while is, you know, what do you want the pace to be? You know, I think is a, another just critical fundamental question. You know, some, some folks would, would say they want to grow, but grow how? Do you want to, do you want to grow a thousand percent a year? Or do you want to grow you know, 10 or 20 or 30% a year? And a lot of companies that are bigger are growing 2 or 3% a year. Uh, so you just have to decide that first. Like, what can you tolerate? You know, are you a race car driver and you're just trying to kind of keep it keep it on the track and that's the really high-paced venture back kind of thing? You know, are you, are you more of an organic growth kind of person? And one of the things that kind of bothers me actually is when people talk about like, oh, that's just a lifestyle business or whatever. And I'm like, that's fine if that's what somebody wants to do. I mean, that's not really how we're building this company, but... Um, you know, there are lots of really great businesses that are quote unquote lifestyle businesses and they've never taken a dime of outside capital and they're awesome. You know, I love driving through industrial park type places and looking at all these big buildings with random names I've never heard of. And I'm like, God, that company's got to be doing a lot of, a lot of revenue. I mean, they look at all the cars in the parking lot, tons of employees, big building. I know what that costs. You know, it's, it's amazing how many great companies are out there that nobody knows about. And they've built it just from making money, make more money, make more money, like the, just in reinvest in the company. And you don't have to raise money to have a successful company. Um, I mean, our, our choice has just been, look, we, we see a really, really big market opportunity. We have very competitive people, as we've talked about before, on our team. Um, we want to help. We want to serve more customers. We want to do it in a, in a quick way because we think we think we can and we should. Um, to help our customers more. And so we're just trying to lean in. We're trying to lean in to help 
And uh, so as we've as we've thought about raising money, and then I think I think once you start raising money too, it just it kind of puts you on a path where you're probably going to raise money again, and you're probably going to raise money again once you start. Um, it's just it's just part of the the game. Um, and we've been super fortunate. I mean, the, the investors who've been in our company are just phenomenal and supportive and helped us when things were not remarkable in terms of tailwinds, you know, and, um, now that things are, are going really well, you know, I think raising money when, when things are really good is, is also important if you can do it. Right. I mean, it's, you always hear people give advice about that kind of stuff where they say, <clears throat> ask for advice and you might get money, ask for money, you might get advice. And then also just, um, raise money when you don't really need to, so you don't have to have your back against the wall and you know have to try to raise money. Got it. Um, I wanted to. You, you said there, you know, you've had a, a lot of learnings along the way scaling this company. I want to ask you a few questions about your learnings for the audience to take away. Um, if you could think of some of your biggest learnings that you've had throughout building Handle, uh, maybe one or two. Let's talk about those, and then I got some follow up questions. Yeah. Um, so, so pace is, is one of them. I mean, it's, it's understanding like when you raise money. So if we just kind of continue from that thought process a second ago of, of raising money or not, I think one of the things I've learned is, is when you raise money, make sure you have a really great plan for using the money, um, quickly, um, not burning through it, but using it in a highly impactful way to try to get the flywheel going quickly. Uh, I think, I think some entrepreneurs who are, are new entrepreneurs, and I was a little bit like this when I first started the company, I was like, okay, I have this money. I want to be responsible about the money. And so I want to stretch it as far as I can. And so I'm going to kind of spend a little bit here and a little bit there. And you sort of nickel and dime your way. And then you end up looking up in 12 to 18 months and you're like, uh-oh, I'm about to raise, run out of money. When really the right thing to do is probably let's place some really strategic but important bets with this money on really great talent. Let's go hire those people and realize that those people are probably going to come up with other things to generate revenue and that flywheel is going to start. And then maybe you won't need to raise money because you are using the money wisely to generate money faster. Right. So, you know, just building momentum. It's kind of like if you've ever ridden, ridden a bike, you know, like if you if you're on a hard gear and you're pedaling really slowly on that hard gear versus if you kind of hammer it really hard at the start and then it then it gets going pretty quick right it's a lot easier even if it's on the hard gear because you hammered it at the start and that's that's kind of what using money is like when you're trying to trying to think about getting that flywheel going yeah that's an that, awesome analogy there i think that's a great learning because for me i i aspire to be a founder one day once i get that problem i really want to latch onto. but for me when i think of raising capital i i like risks but also when it comes to financials i like being a little bit more conservative so I think that's a great piece of advice for people who might be kind of like me is take those strategic bets, you know, have that risk for appetite, uh, even when it comes to, to raising money. I don't know, that just, that resonates with me. Yeah. I mean, you have to mitigate the risk too. I'm not saying be a freewheeling right. spender. I mean, I see companies like I go to San Francisco a fair bit and you see lots of companies out there, they raise a ton of money. And the first thing oh, they yeah, do the is cr create just an amazing office with, yeah. you know, all kinds of frills and that kind of stuff. Like, Sure, you can do that and your employees will be happy with that in the beginning, but is it really the right use of capital? I mean, it's not really moving the company forward. I mean, there are other ways to develop a good culture than that, right? Um, you know, would you be better off like hiring a world-class um, product development person or a world-class salesperson or a world-class whatever you do, right, as a company? And that is another learning too that reminded me of another learning. I mean, I had, had one 
one kind of advisor friend who, who said, okay, you know, who is the Michael Jordan of this? Right. And just always think about that and like really stretch your thinking to, to not compromise on the talent. And if you, if you're in the secondary market, like who is the Michael Jordan of the refurb market? Well, we hired this guy named Mike Durr. I think he's the Michael Jordan of the refurb market, right? I mean, the, who's the Michael Jordan of, you know, execution in early stage companies. I think Keaton Patel is the Michael Jordan of execution, right? So, I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like trying to really find a world-class person to do each one of those roles and just don't settle. Well, I think another good learning to distill from that is that everything that you talked about in terms of spending your investment was investing into people and surrounding yourself with a culture and people who are going to drive your business forward. I think for me, I knew that, yeah, you hire people with that investment money, but there, it seemed like that is not a majority in my head, at least of where I would think investment going. So that's an awesome thing to think of is, you know, put that money in people and the the better the team you surround yourself with, the faster your company is going to grow, the faster that, that flywheel that you mentioned is going to get going. Yeah. And they'll figure it out. Like if you have problems, yeah. it's good to have other people with other perspectives and, and diverse experiences to help figure it out. Yeah. Right. And if you don't have that, then it's all on you. Right. And yeah. Love that. We want to, you know, to continue with the learnings, you learn from mistakes, right? So what are some mistakes that you want uh, our audience that might be wanting to start a company to avoid and just listen to you say it and they avoid it themselves? What are some things that you made a mistake along the way that you want to prevent other people from making? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the deployment of capital would fall in that, in that bucket, but I think other things, um, I think building, if you're in a technology company, building things really quickly, even if, even if they're not exactly what you're going to want long-term and, I think some people who start companies, if they're a perfectionist, they really have trouble with with shipping products and getting things out that might be a little simplistic or a little ugly. And sometimes that's what you need to get feedback, you know, and, and also finding those early adopters as customers. If you can identify folks who might be customers that will give you honest feedback, but won't like chastise you or hold you, um, you know, too much accountable, I guess, for, um, for having something that's ugly or not working or whatever. Um, just showing it to them, you know, saying, Hey, this is kind of what we're thinking. Is this directionally accurate? Um, and not being embarrassed about that and just realizing that it's going to change over time. You're going to make it better, but the only way to make it better is to get some feedback. Uh, I think a lot of folks like will whiteboard things to death or they'll, they'll tweak things to death and it just takes too much time. Speed is everything. You've got to get things shipped. You got to get them out. You got to get customer feedback. Your product will get better, but you got to get it get it done. So to transition into building your company and building it here in Kentucky and in Louisville specifically, you know, Louisville's got that whole healthcare ecosystem around here. Uh, so let's dive into talking about how the city of Louisville, how building a company here, the 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 pros and the cons, the good things that Louisville's doing well, and then maybe some areas of improvement also. Yeah, Louisville's been great to us. I mean, I, the people here are so accessible. I think that's the most important thing. Like everybody's one or two phone calls away, right? I mean, you guys have seen that, I'm sure. I mean, you've done a bunch of podcasts. You've met lots of people. Um, same with us as as a young company. You know, it's it's shocking how easy it is to get to CEOs of big companies or the mayor or potential investors or whatever. I mean, everybody's just a, a couple phone calls, a couple meetings away and everybody's just receptive to meeting new people and, and helping people out. Um, so I, I love that. I think that's, that's amazing. Uh, I think on the opportunity side, um, 
you know, it's not a huge knock against Louisville, but Louisville is not, um, not very, very far developed from a mindset perspective, like a community mindset perspective to take significant risks. I mean, it's just a more conservative place. And you go to, you go to the coast and everybody knows this, but you go to the coast and they're just willing to place big bets. I mean, they understand power law and people here don't really understand power law that much, right? They don't understand, you know, that, that if you invest in a hundred companies and one of them ends up having crazy returns, then it pays for all the rest of the companies. Everybody here is more, you know, we want to make sure most of the companies we invest in are successful and that's fine, but they end up with a lot of singles and doubles. And there, you don't see a lot of companies here that end up being billion dollar companies because they don't invest enough to give them enough fuel to be able to truly compete nationally. I mean, if you're, if you're competing and you raised $1 million here and the same startup rate that's doing the same kind of thing in San Francisco raises $10 million, I mean, they're going to be able to hire the superstar and pay them 300 grand and really go when you're going to have to like stretch that million dollars here and find somebody who can kind of do it, who's kind of junior and kind of helps you along. And then it just takes longer. So I think the execution cycle is longer here uh, because they, you just don't invest enough in in the in the business to start, especially. Um, you know, I think I think there are folks who are coming here or folks who are, you know, traveling more or whatever that are starting to understand some of those things. But there just there needs to be more capital here, and, and we need to take a little bit bigger risks. We did a whole episode in Lexington on on that mindset and kind of the conservative values that we have here. Um, what, what do you think changes that or accelerates the change of that over time? Cause it's, it, is it generational? What, how does that change? Do we need to see examples like Zermed or extreme in Lexington that sold for close to a billion? What's it take to kind of change that mindset over time or yeah. accelerate that? Yeah. I mean, those are, those are great companies for sure. Uh, I, I think, I think some of the recruiting of people who have lived in Kentucky and recruiting them back and then maybe even like developing programs where, you know, you almost have a, instead of a loaned executive program, you have like a, a loaned um, entrepreneur support person kind of program. You know, like if, if you wanted to go to a startup in San Francisco that I know about, then maybe I say, Hey, I'm going to hook you up with this job. And you go out there and you kind of see how it works. And you're there for a few, few months working for Stripe or some like massively successful company. Um, then when you come back here, your mindset's different because you've just seen people think bigger. Right. And so as you've seen people think bigger and then you act like that and then you start to tell other people to act like that. And then it just starts to permeate throughout the community. Right. So there's there's that. And then I also think that, you know, we need to have more exits here. Right. That helps. But also maybe even going to the coast, taking some of that money from the coast and establishing a middle of America extension or franchise of Sequoia or A16Z or, you know, any of those big funds, but having a Sequoia Louisville office. Um, and they, you know, they invested in Zermid and Bain did too. And I mean, there, there've been big investors outside, but there's never been like a partner here, you know, that, that is working with them and has that mindset and is on calls all day and thinking about making big bets and all that stuff. So we just need to infuse our community with more, you know, money and people who have seen different ways of doing things. And there are a few here. It's not like there's zero, um, but there just needs to be more. I mean, you can't help but bump into people at coffee shops in Silicon Valley. I mean, you're, you're everywhere you go, if somebody's talking about, I just raised 10 million, I raised 20 million, I raised 50 million. I, you know, it's just literally have been sitting in a coffee shop and yeah. heard that conversation Absolutely. in San Francisco. Like it's real. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're just talking about that ambition and that want to start companies and, and raise money and grow. You have that. And so you have a vision for handle. We always try to end on a forward looking statement, uh, with these episodes 
you know, what's that vision and what's that thing you're running after uh, with Handle and where do you see it going? Yeah, so, I mean, a few things related to that. Like, I've uh, been super fortunate to have amazing mentors. So you talk about, like, that mindset and people who have been there before. Um, David Jones Sr., who passed away recently, um, was an absolutely incredible mentor to me. Um, didn't have to spend time with me, <laughs> but did. And just his mindset and how he thought about things and, and the impact he's had on the community, too, and you know, these anonymous donations and other things and 21st century parks and other stuff that it's not even related to Humana. Um, some of that stuff he's done is just inspiring to me. Um, and so I, you know, I want to, want to think about being able to potentially provide some level of impact. That's, that's, you know, even a very fraction of that, but if it's, if it's something that's at least with that same mindset and that same community orientation to try to give back and to try to help, um, you know, that's, that's what I want to do. And, you know, Endeavor and places like that are doing those things. Right. And we're an Endeavor company and Endeavor is all about going big and giving back. And that's definitely my, my mentality. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll have a chance to do that, but you know, our space that we're in is a, is a big space. I mean, it's a medical equipment and devices. The annual purchase of those is a hundred billion dollars a year. So a hundred billion a year. And then the average life cycle of an asset is about 10 years. So if you take 100 billion a year times 10, it's a trillion dollars worth of assets that are floating around in the country that are not really actively managed and are not there's no end-to-end solution for that. So there's there's big big market opportunity for us to grow and scale and you know, I I think we've got the team to do it. I think we're in the right position. I think it's the right time related to COVID and kind of folks coming out and of this and hospital systems needing to stretch their capital further and needing to think about capital in a little bit different way and try to save time, save money, have more transparency, you know, so I, I think we're in a, in a good situation. Um, but you know, I, I love being in this community. I love being in Louisville. I love being in Kentucky and, um, you know, hope to be here for a long time. 